Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Frumpkin Show. This evening, my guest is David Foster Wallace. David um, is not only talented, he's, he is sort of a literary iconoclast, an experimenter. If, if This is my description, David. Don't look alarmed. And uh, he, he doesn't uh, shy away from trying new forms. His new book, Brief Interviews with Hideous Men, has been receiving glowing notices and... Uh, and received with both admiration and controversy. It's published by Little Brown. It's in your bookstores now. David has written several other books. His major work, I suppose it's your major work, is called The Infinite Jest, but he also wrote The Broom of the System uh, and The Girl with Curious Hair, an essay collection, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. All right. Um, let's begin, David, by... If I inter ask you to say, why did you do brief interviews with hideous men? It's kind of a, a departure for you from the large novel form you did with Infinite Jest. And it's fascinating in its own way, but what brought you to hideous men? Well, I've done, I done one other book of stories before. This is kind of halfway between a book of stories and, and maybe a, a couple of novellas. They're stories, but a lot of them are cycles and kind of fit together and I was kind of interested in I was interested in doing a book that, that didn't really fall into, into kind of a standard classification I, something tells me most people are just going to see it as a book of stories though so. Wait, can I ask what, what controversy you said has been received with controversy have I missed a certain amount of controversy I think the idea of interviews with hideous men uh, has caused some people to say that's an odd and curious theme and maybe, maybe and I have heard from time to time from people saying at least I don't want to mention the names on, on one side or the other well, a friend of mine who is a friend of yours I believe named Rick Moody told me wonderful things about your writing before I started reading you and someone else said to me I don't understand infinite chess and it's kind of curious do you take him seriously or do you and so forth and so on I meant that kind of let's say that it stimulated interesting reactions. Maybe it sh I shouldn't say controversy. Fair enough. Okay. Now, let us go on. We need to understand we're very sensitive. We need, we, we need clarification. Right? Okay. All right. Talent you'll accept, right? That's, yeah, we'll just let that go. Okay. Um, let me ask you now, let me just for a second throw out a weird question to you about going back to Infinite Jazz. Um, Oren Incondenza. If you spell Oren backwards, it comes out Nero. Does that have any significance whatsoever? Uh, but Even misspelled? Yeah, it spells Nero, but not correctly. I don't, I don't think so. The first couple things I did, I would do things like have names that, when spelled backwards, had a certain amount of significance. And I just, it, it seemed to me the sort of thing that ended up being really interesting to me and less interesting to everybody else. So I kind of stopped doing it after a while. Let's talk for just a moment, and we don't have to remain too long on this. There are big sexual themes in both in Infinite Jest and in Hideous Men. Uh, oh, that's a prompt. I didn't, there didn't seem to me to be that much sex in Infinite Jest, other than the character of Oren. Mm -hmm. Oren is actually kind of, I think, a transplanted Hideous Man. There's, for people who've read Infinite Jest, some of the attitudes and verbal styles of the males who are interviewed in this book are probably most reminiscent of Warren and Kendenza. But actually, one of the reasons for doing, I think there are four sets of the interviews in the book, and they're, they're, they're part of the cyclical thing of it, was that a, 
some readers I respected, like who read my stuff in manuscript, had pointed out that really, except for except for a couple little parts of books, I had never done anything about about sex or what they what they called love stories. And um, it occurred to me that that yeah, I was uncomfortable. Um, I was uncomfortable doing stuff about sex, and, and there were probably some interesting reasons why. And so that was at least a motivation for for trying to do something like this book. I don't know. I don't know how how much it informed the book, mm-hmm. the way it ended up. I'm sorry. I'm kind of rambling. No, no, that's absolutely. We're sitting in a library here, and there's a whole lot of really interesting stuff to look at in the walls. And it's very distracting, but in a good way. Sorry. No, don't be sorry. Um, Let's, for just a, a moment, turn to you. You, you, you certainly, Infinite Jest, um, maybe more so than Hideous Men, is enormously um, wide-ranging and erudite in many ways. There's a lot of word. There's a lot of play. There's a lot of reference. It takes a an intelligent reader really to probably get a lot out of the book in a in, a, in the serious way, probably in which you intended it. Um, what what brought you to Infinite Jest, um, and where did you do your education, and how did you get to the point in life where you were ready to do a book like Infinite Jest? That's that seems like a lot of questions all wrapped together. I like any part of it. I, um, th- there's a certain amount of Infinite Infinite Jest was in some ways supposed to be kind of about America, the the way the way it seems as, as I live in it um, or the way it's going to seem and some of that has to do with um, with information and the challenge of digesting enormous amounts of information and also forming forming patterns and meaning out of information the weird thing is is I, I didn't really expect to have to talk that much about the book because um, because I knew it was going to be hard I don't. I don't think. I, I don't think an exceptionally intelligent person is required to read these sorts of books. And by these sorts of books, I mean kind of caviar for the general. There's all kinds of different books, and some of the books that I read are books um, that are they're interesting, but they're not very hard. And I'll read them like at the end of a hard day's work, and they're kind of an escape. And then some books are are require work, and you're you know you're tired after an hour of reading them, and they require a lot of mental activity. And this was this was designed to be kind of a book like that. And I, I don't know. I think what it requires is is somebody's probably got to have like at least a liberal arts background, and they've also they've got to be somebody who really gets off on reading and likes likes to work really hard. From that fact, I don't think it was unreasonable of me. I expected you know that a few people would read it. My 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 greatest hope was that was that the publisher would be able to make back enough would be able to make back my advance so that I wasn't the guy who'd cost them money. And, and you know enough about. The publishing business to know that that's you know that that's a reasonable hope to have. Somehow, Little Brown, um, in in ways that I still can't quite figure out, were able to take extreme length and extreme difficulty and make that seem sexy in a in a in a marketing or PR context, and got the book um, an enormous amount of attention. Which, of course, um, I'm not allergic to at all. It was, it's you know it's wonderful, but I'm I I. I don't really know how to how to talk about it very well because I didn't really expect to have to talk about it. Mm. I was going to ask you. I'm glad you touched on that. What that did to your head, if anything, the idea that um, there were some very wonderful things said about you and your talent as a writer, 
um, which sometimes can produce a great deal. Let me put it this way. Dave Barry once told me, I said, what was it like to win the Pulitzer Prize, Dave? He said, well, it made the next column I had to do the most difficult column I ever had to write. Now, here is David Foster Wallace, who's being called the, uh, you know, one of, one of the Wundek, literary Wunderkinder of our time. I mean, a brilliant, brilliant novelist, this, that. A lot, you've, you've heard of it across the board in many, many ways. You were probably writing the book and serious about your writing and experimenting and doing, and all of a sudden you're getting this enormous attention. Did that make you feel, I'm sure it felt good in some ways, but it, did it also put pressure on you and make you feel in, uh, that you had to produce or you had to feed these um, people who were expecting so much from you? Well, there's the good-sounding answer and there's the truth. And I'll, <laughs> I'll, exp I'll experiment and, and tell you the truth. And, okay. the, and the truth is, sure. On the other hand, you know, if, if, if you do a book that you think is good and it gets no attention at all or people, you know, spit on it, well, that puts pressure on you, too. The fact of the matter is those of us who've chosen to do this have signed on for a certain amount of pressure. The, the only frustrating thing about it, really, is that you're aware that 98% of it is internal, you, you know? Um, and so you're kind of fighting with yourself. I think one advantage I had is that, you know, I, I think I was 32 or 33 when Infinite Jest came out, and it was... You know, I'd already written two books and co-written a third, and none of them had gotten much attention. But I'd at least been through something like this before, um, so I, I think there's a certain amount of perspective that's helpful. For instance, the book gets a lot of attention, but attention is not the same thing as affection. Um, you know, it got some it got some really some really negative reviews, and whenever something is held up high, which is which is what the publishers were able to do. They were able to get the book up in a place where everybody was talking about it. You get your feelings hurt sometimes. And I hadn't had I hadn't had as much complimentary stuff said, but I also hadn't had as much negative stuff said. And I discovered, I, I mean, I just have a certain sort of talent for dissociation. I, by the time the book came out, I'd been done with it for over a year. I was on to other stuff. You know, I live in a small town where I, I really hear only as much of this stuff as I want to. Um, and a lot of that, you know, it's just, it's, it's just the product of experience. When I see sometimes people come along and, and it's their first book that gets attention like that, I feel for them because I think it would be very, very difficult uh, if that were your only experience of writing a book and having your book received. I mean, you'd immediately think you had to duplicate that experience in your next book, which I think is death. How did you come to be a writer? Where did that come from? I was, um, I certainly didn't do much writing in college, but I wrote a lot of papers. I, I went to a mediocre high school and a very good college where all of a sudden, you know, there was, there were dozens of pages of writing required a week. I had a friend who was a year older who as part of his senior project wrote a sustained piece of fiction and he and I were at a reading group together and I decided that I would try it too. And I don't know, it sounds kind of banal, I really liked it. Um, I liked it more than my other major, which was a very kind of technical um, kind of math philosophy, and decided it, my world was so narrow at that point that the big decision was what kind of grad school to go to. So I decided to go to grad school in writing. And when I was in grad school at a party, somebody as a joke gave me a list of agents, and I sent part of the thesis to a list of agents. And, um, and one of them, Bonnie Nadell, who, you know, um, of Fred Hill Associates wrote back, and I and she became my agent, and she sold the book, and I, some of it some of it was was I think my wanting to become a writer, but um, again, probably as you know, forty three kismetish things have to happen. 
you know, there's so many people, talented, committed people who want to do this sort of work for a living that, that you have to have a lot of lucky breaks. One lucky break for me was that this was in the mid-80s when it was very, very um, hip to be young. Jay McInerney's book had come out and Brett Ellis's Less Than Zero, and it was, it, I, I think actually one of Bonnie's hooks for selling Broom in the System is this kid's only 22 years old. It's probably... Um, Are these coherent answers? Yeah, they're wonderful. They're fine. And uh, do you regret not having become Willard Van Orman Quine? <laughs> <laughs> I think if I could have been W.V.O. Quine, I might have gone into philosophy. I don't know. I tried after, after four or five years of writing, as happens to a lot of people, I kind of um, lost, um, lost some of the innocent enthusiasm I'd had for it, and it began to get difficult, and I began to feel pressure, and I, I experimented with going back to graduate school to get a degree in philosophy, and I discovered that I'd, I, I think I'd gone too far down, down the fork of the road that I'd taken. I, didn't, I particularly didn't want people telling me what to read anymore to get the degree. No, I don't regret it. My father teaches philosophy, and he will, you know, I'll see journal articles lying around, and every once in a while I'll pick one up and realize how far out of the loop I am, and how, you know, I've, I've now missed the last five or six publishing generations of, of some of the problems in this. But my experience, senior year of college, continues to be my experience, which is that fiction writing, when it's going well, you know, allows you to, to just to visit untouristed parts of yourself and your brain and, you know, in your chest and all kinds of stuff in a way that, at least for me, purely abstract academic work didn't. They, abstract stuff is fascinating, but it's very front of the head. Sure. And, uh, anyway. Who did you read growing up that might have inspired you, might have led you down this line, if, if, if indeed it did? I, I'm, not, I'm not sure how to answer that. My mom's an English teacher, like a literature teacher, so she read to us a lot, and we, my sister and I read a lot as kids, but, I, you know, we read stuff like Middlemarch, you know, or I can remember my father. <laughs> Reading the unexpurgated Moby Dick, you know, including the cytology stuff mm. in that test. I, I, most, I, most kids skip those jobs. Oh, <laughs> Looking back, it seems borderline abusive. But <laughs> what what happened to me was that um, a lot of stuff happened to me in college. I'd been kind of a jock in high school. I didn't realize, um, you know, that I was smart academically, and I also didn't realize that I really sort of got off on this stuff until about sophomore year of college. A bunch of a bunch of friends had a reading group, and some of the stuff they were reading was stuff that I'd never heard of before. Latin Americans, you know, not just Marquez, but Jose Donoso and Manuel Puig, particularly Puig was a big turn on for me. And Donald Bartholomew, and, you know, Giles Goat Boy by John Barth, and all kinds of stuff that um, maybe really esoteric English classes I could have found the stuff, but I, I didn't know about any of this. And I found it, particularly because it was, it was funny and dark, um, I found it to be tremendously energizing in a way that, you know, I'd enjoyed Ulysses, you know, and kind of taken pride in having gotten through Ulysses. Ulysses didn't make my heart beat fast. And some of the stuff that we read in this reading group did. Um, and then also, some of, the, some of the guys who were in the reading group um, were also working on fiction themselves. And though I wasn't at that time, um, I, would, I would sit with them and hear them talk about it. And it just seemed really interesting to me. I think they probably... They probably influenced me more than anybody else did. Do you, who do you read now for pleasure? Yeah. 
That's, that's, that's a tricky question because the weird thing is that a lot of the stuff that I used to read for pleasure, I now sometimes will read and tell myself that it's kind of for work. You know, I want to see, like, you know, what's Robert Coover doing now? Or, you know, is Joseph McElroy's Women and Men really as brutally difficult to get through and why? And to kind of, to kind of study these guys. Um, and, and in a way, that makes it less fun. Like, when I'm doing that, I count that as work time. Um, so, so it's funny. I, I read that stuff, and I have to read a huge amount of, like, nonfiction and just weird esoteric stuff for things that I think I might want to be working on. And I don't know that I really do read that much for fun. Mm-hmm. I also have to read student stuff, and I have to read, you know, if I judge contests, I have to read that stuff. Probably the only thing that I read purely for fun anymore is poetry. Um, and, and that's probably my own fault. Any kind of fiction, I think my, my ego is a little bit involved. And for instance, if I don't think it's very good, there will be a temptation to sneer. Or if it is really good, there will be a temptation to kind of clutch my head in despair and go, oh God, I could never do that, and, which frustrates me about myself. It's, it's, it, spoils, it spoils the very best experience of reading that I can remember very well being young. But see, with poetry, because I don't write poetry and don't have any ambitions to write poetry, I can be kind of a kid again. Um, the thing about poetry is that it's hard work, and so it's fun, but I can maybe read poetry for about an hour a day. Um, you, I mostly watch movies at night now. As someone who likes poetry and is a fine writer, you obviously love language. Do you have favorite words, word or words, for any reason, either ones that you find crop up more often in your writing than others, or just that you're drawn to for euphony or any other reason? I, I, it's, it's interesting. Um, I was just talking with somebody about this. I do, I do, but I have favorite words the way people have favorite songs on the radio. I'll, I'll have favorite words and I'll use them over and over and over again until I get sick of them and then I don't use them anymore. And I, I couldn't, I can't think of examples right now off the top of my head, but if I look back at earlier stuff I've done, I can tell that this is, this is a book when I was enthralled to this word. I mean, the very first book I did, um, uh, Broom of the System, uh, the word troubled meaning like emotionally unstable or unhappy, came up like a hundred times in a 500-page book. And I was clearly just... Was it a troubled period for you? Problem of the system? I don't know. That was Most of that, that book was written senior year of college when actually I was having a ball. Uh-huh. Interesting. Um, do you ever... Have you taught, David? Have you ever taught writing? Or... or You've taken writing courses. Yeah, I've taught them. I teach. I'm a. I'm a. Actually, believe it or not, a professor of English at Illinois State University. Huh. So, uh, Which brings me to the next question: What advice would you give to young writers starting out? Oh boy. Well, Take time. You can pause for a the question divides into two areas. To students, I'm, I'm, I'm mean to my students a little bit because I think I want them. Very often, students who come to grad programs are still in, are are still into expressive writing, which is writing is neat by God just because they're doing it, and their 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 teachers are encouraging them to do it, and they think it's interesting just because they're doing it. And I want to get them a little bit a taste of. The grown-up, the grown-up reading world, which is really, um, they don't care about you. you. You know, the the reader, the reader has has a very precious commodity, which is time and attention, and you're asking that reader for time and attention, and you have to earn it. So very often, with students, 
my advice to them will be to try to um, to try to expand their repertoire and do things that they don't do well. Um, I will notice that it's very often uh, writing students will come in with one or two things that they do particularly well. Lyrical descriptions, for instance, or they're terrific at building a kind of um, emotional climax, but every single story will be the same. And I will be mean to them until they begin trying to do things that they don't believe they can do. I sometimes also get letters from just like regular civilian people. And very often, they're, they're often very moving. They're often from young men. And they're, the, the tone is, I, I read such and such of yours, and I really, really liked it. And I, too, want to be a writer. And I, I just, I don't know whether you can help me, but is there some way that I can do stuff that I can be sure is as good and as likable as I find your stuff? And um, for some reason, for some reason, these letters really get to me. And, and it's in writing back to, to some of these kids that I've discovered that um, um, I mean, what they're doing is they're afraid. They're afraid that they're going to invest themselves and they're going to invest their time um, and, they're, they're, and, and their stuff isn't going to be any good. And they want to know, is there, like, is there a formula? Is there a technique? I mean, there's a whole industry of these how-to books that depend on this. And, and, and what I end up writing back to them is that, I, you know, I've got good news and I've got bad news. And the bad news is, no, there is no technique. And, and, and learn to love this fear because it will be your companion for the rest of your The good news is that we all go through it. And that if you want to keep doing this, the secret is not really so much to learn the secret technique so that you don't feel this fear anymore, but in fact, to abide in this fear. Because it's um, the, the stuff, at least for me, that's difficult about, that's difficult about writing, um, you know, isn't the time and the work. Because when it's going well, I mean, that's a labor of love. The hard thing is the fear. The fear that here's this thing that I've tried really hard on and that I think is really good and I'm going to give it to you and you're going to smile that kind of sickening, polite smile and I'm going to tell, I'm going to be able to tell that you think it's excrement. And what is that going to say about me? <laughs> you know, and the, at least in my experience, the fear never goes away. Interesting. What, how, do you, how do you actually work physically? Do you, and are, are you... Uh, a night person, a day person? Do you work every day? Do you work on a word processor or a long? Tell us something about you. And then, because our time is running short, I'm going to leave. That may have to be our last question. But The God's honest truth is I am a sperm cell. I, um, things are either going well or they're not going well. What will happen is, and I'm, this, is, this is the phase, I'm a, whenever I'm on a book tour, I'm in this phase, I'm working on something now and I just can't seem to get it. I flounder and I flounder. And when I'm floundering, I don't want to work. So I invent draconian, all right, to, this morning I'll work from 7.30 to 8.45 with one five-minute break, you know, all this Baroque BS. Um, and after, after five or 10 or a dozen, or you know, as with some books, 50 tries, all of a sudden it will just, it will start to go. And once it starts to go, it requires no effort. And then actually the discipline is required in terms of um, being willing to be away from it and, and to remember that, oh, you know, I have a relationship that I have to nurture or I have to grocery shop or pay these bills or stuff. So um, I, I have absolutely no routine at all because the times I'm trying to build the routine are the times that the writing just seems futile and flagellating. I don't know whether that makes any sense or not. It, it makes sense, and I have about five dozen other questions for you, David, but unfortunately, we don't have time today. It just and flies, doesn't it? It does fly when you're having fun. Um, my, my guest this evening has been David Foster Wallace. 
his new book, Brief Interviews with Hideous Men, is in your bookstores now. It's by Little Brown, and the book is as interesting as the interesting title, and if you haven't, haven't read David Foster Wallace yet, you should try. You're in for uh, an interesting ride, uh, which I think you'll enjoy very much. David, thank you very much for being my guest on the Fremke Show this evening. Thank you, right back.